Wonderful. If you would turn with me over to 1 John now. 1 John chapter 2. It's a test. Only a test. I remember hearing those words often in high school. And the fact that there was a test coming would make me shudder. I remember reading of the variety of different ways that things were tested. Some of you may recall a litmus paper that would often be dipped in a a particular solubile thing to determine one fact or another about something. One of my granddaughters is working hard to take her driving test. So often it is just the fact that there's a test that tends to cause an individual to put up, you know, a guard and go, okay, I better get ready. And here in chapter 2, the Apostle John wipes away the fear that would come looking at something naturally and graciously and lovingly imparts to every believer uh, the test of knowing him. He begins by dealing with the subject of salvation and tells us in chapter 2, in these first two verses that we read, why he's writing this book. We've mentioned this two weeks before now. This is the second purpose for which he writes the book, as he says there in verse 1, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. I hope we understand that John is writing to Christians. He is writing to men, women, and young people who have said yes to Christ, who have placed their faith in Jesus. He is writing that Jesus offers forgiveness for sin, both in coming to him initially for salvation and after being saved. It is a known fact that we still fall into various sin. We will not be clear of that subject until we enter glory. And so he gives a very clear and beautiful, to me, promise. I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. It's as though the text would open up and say to us, uh, but when you sin, or if in fact you do sin, or I know that sin will still be a part of a challenge in your life and there will be times that we will fall, he says that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Our advocate, the one who stands uh, in front of the Father, stands before the Father, the Bible tells us he is at the right hand of the throne of Uh, of God 
seated, as we sang this morning, seated upon the throne. And whenever one of his children is uh, subject again to the missing of the mark, sin, whenever we miss that mark and and by the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we we immediately come to a crossroads where we, were, we will either be condemned by that missing of the mark or we will be drawn to closer to Christ by the missing of that mark. Our adversary, the devil, will always seek to bring up my mistakes, my failures, my shortcomings, of which there are many, and throw them in my face to cause me to uh, be um, drawn away from God, to sense, oh, I'm, I'm worthless, I can't, I'm condemned. Because his uh, desire in bringing uh, temptation before us, and Lord knows our whole life long, as we walk through this life, there will be temptation. His purpose in bringing temptation uh, to us is to draw us away from God and cause us to feel condemned. God's purposes in temptation are better expressed in the word testing. God will use the circumstances that could be temptation in our life to test us, to draw us closer to himself. Satan tempts, God tests. Let me say it again. Satan tempts, God tests. From time to time when I enter into a circumstance that is extremely challenging for me, I will at times say, Lord, why am I doing this again? And he will remind me because I want to draw you closer to myself. Notice that the Apostle John says that the the advocate work, the advocacy, the the job as our advocate that Jesus takes on before the Father is not just for, you know, a select few. It's not just for us four and no more. It's not for uh, only those that God already in his omniscience knows who will be saved But it is, Jesus is ready to be the advocate for, do you know, see the words there, the end of verse 2, also for the whole world. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That statement in itself wipes away the idea that God is not seeking to save the entire human race. He would that none would perish, but that all would come to eternal life. 
I love what someone once put, he said, uh, it's not a critical race that he's trying to save. It's not a single race. It's not one specific race, but it is the entire human race that God desires to be saved and that Jesus will be the advocate for. And so the question comes, what happens when a, a, a man, a woman, a young person who has given their life to Christ uh, comes head to head with the subject of sin in their life as a Christian? Answer, I'll read this one from a commentator. He says, mark it, that when one becomes a Christian, there is a change in his relationship with sin. Sin is not eliminated in the believer until he comes to glory, but his or her relationship to sin is changed when he or she truly becomes a Christian. And it can be expressed this way. I love this uh, summary. That a Christian no longer loves sin as he or she once did. A Christian no longer brags about his or her sin as he or she once did. A Christian no longer plans to sin as he or she once did. A Christian no longer fondly remembers his or her sin as he or she once did. A Christian never fully enjoys sin as he or she once did. And finally, a Christian no longer is comfortable in habitual sin as he or she once was. Mark it. It's not that sin is eliminated, beloved. And we probably all came through those doors this morning absolutely aware of that fact. But the hope is that we didn't come into this house and gather together as believers condemned, but rather drawn to the Lord because of the weakness of our humanity. And that once we have come to faith in Christ, we are no longer in love with sin. We don't brag about it. We don't plan to do it. We don't fondly remember it. It never really fulfills joy in our life, and we're not comfortable if we continue in it habitually. Change. Presence of the Spirit of God, once we come to faith in Christ, produces a change. It begins a change that lasts our entire rest of our life. And we are to be changing, as the Apostle Paul put it, he says, from glory to glory. And it isn't until they put the nails on the coffin of my grave that I'm to rest and say, Lord, I'm done. Uh, you've done all in me and through me that you want. Take me home now. Until that day, we're supposed to be open to, willing for, embracing of change in our lives. Can I hear an amen? Okay, so John deals with salvation. 
and sin in the believer's life in these first two verses. But he takes the subject now into what I've coined as the tests, the three tests of knowing Jesus. My wife and I were talking yesterday, just we love sometimes just mixing up, mixing it up about the Lord and about his word. And a question came to the surface. I don't know if I put this on here. Uh, no, I didn't. I'll ask you the question, let you mull it over for a moment. Okay, here's, here's the question. Ready? Is it possible to have eternal salvation and not have experiential knowledge of Jesus? One more time. Is it possible to have eternal salvation and yet not have an experiential knowledge of Jesus? I think... John's letter here, chapter 2 specifically, verses 1 through 11, sheds light on that question. And the answer to that can be formed in our hearts today as we study his word. But I'll bring us to verse 3. Let's read it together. John says, Now... By this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, quote, I know him, unquote, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. Stop there. <clears throat> Is it possible to have eternal salvation but not have an experiential knowledge of Jesus? One of the things we need to consider is in the word know. If you'll notice there in verse 3, he says, by this we know him. Uh, we know that we know him. He says it twice. The word there is gnosko. That's the way it's pronounced, I believe, in the Greek. And what it means is an experiential knowledge, a knowledge that touches life, that works itself out in life, and is experienced in life. I'll give you an example of different things that you may know but not work themselves out in your life. <clears throat> You may know how to take a driving test. That doesn't mean you know how to drive a car. You may know how to read a menu at a restaurant, but that doesn't mean you know what that meal you just chose tastes like. And in the same way, one may have said, Yes, by faith uh, to the biblical facts and truth that, that uh, I'm a sinner. God had 
an only begotten son and he went to the cross and died to pay the penalty for my sin and by faith in him I am born again and promised eternal salvation but I have yet to experience the Lord in everyday walks of life. Now this is what John's writing about. To me, the word now in verse 3 differentiates from the subject of uh, sin and our advocate in verse 1 and 2 to verse 3. He says now. It's, it's a new subject. And he gets into these three tests of do we know him? Do we experientially know the Lord? And he tells us that by this we know that we know him. He uses and points the reader to the phrase, if we keep his commandments. Years back, Graham Kendrick, 1993, goes way back, wrote a song, uh, Knowing You. He said, Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord, I love you. Knowing him experientially. John says that here's a way we can deal with this first test, if you will, by keeping his commandments. The moment I read that, I go, oh, it's like a bomb goes off in my brain. It's like, oh, that's too big, right? Well, let's talk about a few of these words. The word keep, it's an important word if it's going to apply to and this isn't a pass-fail, but rather does apply or does not yet apply or is growing in its application. Not a pass-fail. The word keep there, it's important that we see that it means to guard from loss and to keep our eye on. Now, we... Of course, we, we employ the idea of obedience, okay? So this first test of knowing him is going to summarize itself in obeying Christ. But that takes place by uh, guarding this thing called his word from being lost in our life. Oops, sorry about that. How do we guard it from being lost in our life? We stay in it. I'll ask you a very, very personal question. Where's your Bible in your home? Is it on a shelf? Does it collect dust? Is it readily available for you to pull out and read? That would be guarding it from being lost. Now, that's a physical guard of a physical loss, but spiritually also we can take it out and and read a verse and go okay check that but have I placed that verse in my heart so that I don't lose the life that that verse is bringing to me we're going through you know quite a few things in our household lately and 
I was reading through the Psalms recently, and I love it when the Lord just graciously plops a word in my heart. And uh, he knew I needed one. I was reading Psalm 37, 5 and 6, he, and I read this, and that's, that, it's like the Lord said, that's for you. He said, commit your way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And the things that in our household we're concerned with right now, it's like the Lord was reminding me, just commit your way to him. Trust him. And what he wants to do, he will bring to pass. And that's my encouragement to us this morning, to to guard that word in your heart, to guard it from being lost and keeping our eye upon it. Placing it physically in front of our eyes. Placing it spiritually in front of the eyes of our heart. Now isn't that enriching? Because the moment we just place all that aside and say obey. Yeah. Okay. We all want to obey the Lord. But we all know that at times we don't. We all want to be obedient Christians, but at times we're not, you know, fully obedient. But this first test of knowing him experientially deals more with me guarding the word from being lost and keeping my eye upon it. The next thing we have to consider, though, is when he says, guard those commandments, keep your eye on him, it's like another bomb goes off in my head and I go, Boom, oh, wait a minute, which one? Because there's a lot of commandments in there, right? Uh, So, now you can search the scriptures yourself to try and answer this. It's not my job really to just give this to you, but I'll tell you what I was encouraged by this morning. Um, You remember the scribe that came to Jesus and he said, knowing Jesus was a teacher, he said to him, which, which is the first commandment? In other words, maybe I could trick him into, you know, giving me something that isn't really true as it relates to the law of Moses. So what's the biggest one, the first one, the best one, so to speak? And Jesus said to him, he says, you know it, De- Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, hear, O Israel, the Lord Our God is one. And you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So we could boil it down to what commandment am I to keep? But he also told that scribe, according to Leviticus 19.18, he said, and the second is likened unto the first. He said, and you are to love your who? neighbor as yourself to love God with my whole heart mind strength and soul and to love my neighbor as myself wow it reduces it down to an understandable and obtainable in the in the spirit of God a doable thing Paul the Apostle wrote very interestingly in Romans 13.8, he wrote, 
Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. All of it summarized in that. So, to guard this fact that I am to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I'm to love my neighbor as myself, and to keep my eye on that fact is the first test that John says, by this we know that we know him. Do you know him this morning? There are two more, and we'll move through them. The second, if we're going to call them tests, comes to us in the latter portion of verse 5 and goes through 8. You may recall that uh, it wasn't until, oh, 3rd, 4th century when uh, verses were applied to various sections of the book and chapters. This used to be one scroll. And so translators have put the end of verse 5 uh, with verse 5. But as we look at it contextually and we, we look at it from uh, the point of John saying, this is how we know him. If you look at the end of verse 5, he asks a question or makes a statement again. He says, by this, we know that we are in him. And the second test has to do with our abiding, where the first has to do with our obedience. The second has to do with our abiding. By this, we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. He enlarges on this fact in verse 7 and 8. He says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which, is, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And he is, he is in those two verses moving to his next topic. But let's stick with this second test of knowing him. It says that by this we know him, the end of verse 5 uh, that we know we are in him, he who says he abides, verse 6, in him, ought himself also to walk as he walked. Immediately, uh, we are faced with the question of what does John mean when he says to walk as Jesus walked? We are faced with a question that needs to be answered. And I, of course, would remind us that it's not um, how did Jesus physically take his steps? No. We're talking about the things that he, his character, how he walked through life. And there are three uh, scriptures that I'll bring to our remind, 
our remembrance that would, I think, explain this. All of them are in John. Um, the first I will take us to is in John 13, 12 through 17. If you want to turn there with me, John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 12 through 17. In the Gospel of John, chapter 13, all the way through chapter 17, took place on the night before Jesus was crucified. He gathered his disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem. And these chapters in John's Gospel, they are only here. And they are known as the Upper Room Discourse. Because it is here that Jesus imparts uh, the last of his heart to those who have uh, been following him for three years. Many of you may remember is that it was the Passover. And in gathering, when someone came in to sit down before a meal, it was necessary that... Uh, the wearing of sandals, the Middle East dust, that a person's feet were to be washed. And Jesus telling them, what I'm doing now you won't understand, but you will know after this. I draw your attention to verse, uh, verse 12. He says, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garment and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. No one in the household had a lower place than the servant. No one in the household of that day had a more subservient place to walk in life than the servant. The servant was at the bidding of the master. And here Jesus, for those who had followed him, takes on the role of the lowest in the house. The servant. And so I would submit to you and I this morning that it isn't necessarily the physical act of the washing of feet that he's talking about as the example, but rather what the washing of the feet by himself actually portrays. Talking with someone just the other day and he was this individual isn't a Christian and he was very angry at 
at someone else that we both knew about what that individual was doing. And this friend of mine, who's not a Christian, he, he says, well, he doesn't deserve anything. I wouldn't give him anything. If I, you know, it was up to me, he just, just doesn't deserve anything. You ever heard anybody say that? <laughs> say it in that way. I know none of you said that. And I was reminded of the time in my life when I felt like that, when I would echo those sentiments, when I would, you know, think that of someone else. And I'm reminded of the great grace of our God. And I was able to tell this man, none of us deserve anything. It's when I begin to think that, oh, I, I deserve this and I deserve that, that I've removed my thinking cap from being that servant, the lowest in the household. And I'm like you, it, it, you know, the light, the, the switch to thinking I deserve more can come on in a moment. But isn't it nice, please, to remember this morning that Jesus said, no, here's the example I've given you. And blessed are you if you do them, if you live in this way. That is the first um, walking as he walked. Being willing to take the lowest of the road. Secondly, if you'll turn to the left to John chapter 8. John's Gospel chapter 8. I'll give us two verses that encapsulate what the Apostle John is talking about walking as he walked. Look at verse 29 of chapter 8 we read that Jesus is speaking and he says in verse 29, uh, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone for I always do the things that please him. The Father is with me. He's not left me alone. I always do the things that please him. Turn now to the right, just a page or two, to John chapter 10, verse 30. John chapter 10, verse 30. He says, I and my Father are one. So what we have here in, in the summary of what the Apostle John is talking about to walk as Jesus walked is to always be willing to take the lowest place in our heart and to always seek to live a life that is pleasing to the Father, staying in communion with the Son, abiding. Therein is the uh, the walk as he walked, to abide in Christ, to stay in connection with the Father, to always seek to live a life that pleases him, though we all know at times we will miss that, but 
for that to be uh, the clarion desire of our heart. I hope it's your desire this morning. I hope that you walked in these doors saying, God, I want to live a life that pleases you. Because that is what about knowing him is about. He's given us example. Knowing him has to do with obeying him, guarding his word from being lost and keeping our eye upon it, abiding in him, staying in communion with him. And lastly this morning, this third test of knowing him comes to us in verses 9 through 11. Turn back to 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. And it has to do with his love in us and through us. Notice, verse 9, he says, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm going to look up that last no there to see what that one is. I didn't get there yet, but clearly the apostle is now dealing with God's love in the heart of God's child and how that love is expressed toward his brother or his sister. It's important, again, to consider the word that is kind of the definitive that that is going to help us know whether or not we know him, if that love is, in fact, uh, in us and, and being expressed through us, and it is the word hate. It's used several times. Uh, in, it's used in verse 9. Uh, it is used in verse 11. So what does the word hate there mean? You and I can conjure up a couple of different assumed meanings, but what the original word means is to, if you're taking note, Love less or to detest. To love less or to detest. And in this context, if you place love less, he who says he is in the light and loves his brother less, then he loves other individuals, loves his brother or sister less than he would love others is in darkness. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Luke's gospel, where this same word was employed by the Lord himself to define discipleship. And at times it has bothered many a a Bible reader, many Christians to try and Oh, sift through 
How are we supposed to be with our family, with our, our mom, our dad, our brother, our biological brother, sister, cousins, etc.? Because in Luke's gospel, chapter 14, verse 25 and 26, uh, there was a great multitude that came to Jesus. And they wanted to know how they could be his disciple. And Jesus said, Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brother, and sisters, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Holy moly. There's a theological bomb, right? Wait a minute, I thought God was love. He's telling me to hate. My mom, my dad, sister, brother, my wife. Oh my goodness. Have you ever wondered about that verse? I don't know. Maybe, maybe you've looked at it and said, oh, I don't need to know what that means. Or maybe you studied it and you, you've got it down. I don't know. But we're going to cover it quickly this morning because what the word in Luke 14, 26 is hate and it's love less. In other words, I am to love my wife less than I love Christ. I am to love my children less than I love Christ. I am to love my brother and my sister less than I love Christ. And yes, I am to love my own life less than I love Christ. It's an impossible thing except by the Spirit of God and Christ in me. And this same, I mean, it's so quiet in here, you could hear a pin drop. Aye. I hope that the gracious gist of this is landing in fertile soil on hearts. Because what John is saying in his letter is that our love for our fellow brother and sister should be equal. There should not be a greater love for one than the other. And at times in our Christian lives, we meet other Christians that that very truth is to be challenged. Do I love that Christian brother or sister equally as I love others? Is, his, is Jesus' love, the agape love of God, working in me and through me equally toward others? <clears throat> and it's the work of the cross that produces that in our life. I love this. The cross points in four directions to show that the love of Jesus is. It points wide enough to include every human being, long enough to last through all eternity, deep enough to reach the most guilty sinner, and high enough to take us to heaven. And this is the love that is to override our approach to the family of God.
So, in summary, do you know Jesus this morning? By this we know that we know him, right? To know him is to obey him in keeping our eye upon his word and keeping it from being lost in our life. To know him is to abide in him by staying in constant communion with the Father through the Spirit, seeking to live a life that pleases him. To know him is to express love toward our fellow brother and sister in Christ, the same love that we have been the recipient of by our Savior. What a challenge for the day. I'm so glad you came to church this morning. Aren't you? Will you join me as we close in prayer? Team, let's go. To these things this morning, Lord, we can only say, help us, O God. We long to be like you even more. We long to know you even more. And that others would know that we know you. I'm reminded of your statement that the world would know we are your disciples by our love one for another. And that your same servant, John, in this same letter tells us at the end of his letter, as he is, so are we in this world. Holy Lord, we so need you today. We so need you every day, every hour. And you've promised that if we ask, you will come. All we need to do is invite you. So we take a moment this morning, Lord, after hearing you speak through your word to invite you to have your way in our hearts that we might leave here changed a little closer to you that we might spend the rest of this week ahead of us abiding in you knowing full well that you love us in Jesus' name.